Welcome to the Exit Podcast. This is Dr. Bennett. I'm joined here by Grump Pa. He's an Iraq and Afghanistan vet. He's got a decade of experience as an information security consultant. We wanted to have him on the show to discuss sort of how to stay safe in our current threat environment and maybe some thoughts about where things are headed in the future. So welcome to the show, Grump Pa. Thank you, Doc. Glad to have you here. So um, I want to just go straight into it. In you may be aware that that uh, our group of guys uh, on sort of Latter Day Saint Twitter uh, were doxxed by an Antifa ring, and it seems pretty clear that the people that we were up against were not playing fair. Like when they dox people, they generally claim to be using OSINT, open source intelligence, meaning they're just googling around, paying attention to what you tweet, etc. Uh, but for one of our most high profile doxings they claimed that like they they matched the brick pattern from a picture of one of the walls in his house and then they cross-referenced that against zillow listings and that's how they got him and we were all like no you didn't that's not how you did it like you clearly had some some parallel construction uh so that you could sort of build that case um do you think that these groups have friends in big tech or even higher up potentially or do you think it's most likely just social engineering insider threats I would actually be, I'd lend more credibility to the first, like to, to the former rather than the latter, um, only based on other experiences I've seen with some folks like, you know, you have to make the assumptions that the folks that run these platforms and have that internal access uh, have their own political leanings, have their own feelings about the metaphysical um, and with those feelings, you know, have their own prejudices. And, sure. and of course they would say, you know, in the organizations that they represent would say that they don't have that level of access or that they have prevention methods in place. Um, but what you're talking about, you know, matching a brick pattern, like I'm not sure there's, there's enough computing power in the world nor some advanced algorithm that would be able to, to make that work. Right. right. Like I've seen this in other cases, like, you know, I've got a, a friend who's had something very similar and his OPSEC was exceedingly good. Um, and yet they were able to determine who he was, who he worked for, et cetera. And the evidence that was that was provided was very spurious like that, where it was like, oh, well, you know, and, and much of it is like that after the fact, like you can see that they confirmed their docs. Right. possibly with like a brick pattern or a bracelet or a tattoo or some of these other information items, but you couldn't see the breadcrumb trail through those items that landed at the person like you're talking about. So it's always been my assumption, especially with social media platforms that, you know, there's no one really watching the watchers and there's right. no, and there's no, and, and they kind of get you in the way that there's no way to prove it. Right. Like they, sure. they win that game because, you know, they just have to show the docs. They don't have to show how they arrived at the docs. And it is really an unfair game, but it again, just points to the fact that these platforms are inherently unsafe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's no, um, yeah, it, it, I, I feel bad for the guys that, 
that worked so hard and like uh, <laughs> were so incredibly careful for so long because um, they got blown open just the same as I did. Like it was not, um, it was, it was no different, made no difference uh, to, to the outcome. Um, it, it seems like the safest thing for people in our situation to do OPSEC wise is just never post, never make friends, never reveal your identity to anybody. But I like, I just don't want to live that way. And so, and, you know, besides which it's irrelevant now for me because I've uh, already been doxxed. Um, right. But when I, when I advise other people, uh, especially, you know, guys in my group, um, you know, I, I've had guys who are getting their tweets archived and um, are clearly sort of on the radar and every time that happens, it's hard for me to tell them, like, you're safe. Like, you've got, right. um, you know, just just don't talk about this, you know, scrub this and that. Like, do you think that there's a safe way to to operate in that space? Or is it like just as soon as you're as soon as you, the eye of Sauron's on you, like, that's it? It just depends on the group. I mean, the problem always with these is like, you know, most people think a lot of the folks that I tend to deal with because I'm, I'm not affiliated with like your compatriots, but like the folks that I tend to talk to, you know, they're heavily concerned about like the federal government. Like it's, you know, the, the accusation that everyone's a fed yeah. tends to be their thing. And, and I'll tell them what I'd say to any group, even like yours is in order for you to get in that eye of Sauron, whether that's the the eye of like, you know, the federal government or Antifa or, you know, the fedora tippers who just are anti-religion or, or whomever it might be is like, you just you don't pop up on the radar because once you get yeah. onto the radar, you know, a case is open to maybe on you. Right. And they, a lot of them are persistent enough that they'll, you know, continually develop um, a, a file on you. Yeah. Um, you know, the archiving of tweets and things. I mean, I've seen people say that, like, those are indicators of, you know, impending doom or compromise. And, you know, if your tweets are out in the open, like, if you're not, if you don't, if you haven't locked up, if you're not protected, they're always out there. And yeah. many times if a tweet even lasts, if it's even up longer than I think a day, generally a lot of these organizations that do like this, this archiving, they're doing it automatically. They're going to snatch that tweet too. And, and if it's been up for longer than a day, it's almost assuredly somewhere. Yeah. Um, even if you remove it off of Twitter's platform and it's not searchable there, it's possibly searchable somewhere else. You know, the, the, the problem is, is, you know, of course you want to go down social media, you want to like pinded people, you want to discuss things that, you know, are important to you. Um, but that same light that draws you, you know, draws bugs and, yeah. Um, the, 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 the distinction is, is to develop some way of communicating, um, your fraternity and how close you might be without saying the controversial things that would get you, um, kind of in that, again, that to use a metaphor, but that, that eye of Sauron, like, you know, have a light just bright enough to draw you in in a way of signaling that you are like-minded without, 
bringing in the folks that you don't want brought in. And then that's a really yeah. tough tightrope to walk. You know, it's, I, yeah, I almost, how I almost think that there, that there are a lot of, I can think of a lot of friends who, um, you know, are, are maybe smarter than me in some ways, but like, just don't have that social perception of like mm-hmm. how a thing is going to be interpreted. And, uh, right. and so like, though, yeah, it's like for those guys, it's almost like you just can't, you either got to not post or you got to accept that you're going <laughs> to that you're going to be in the crosshairs. You know, and, and depending on, I would, I understand what it's like for a lot of folks when this happens, like, you know, and in your case, like the kind of trouble that it can get you in. And, and I think that people, the best thing they can do is have the awareness of it up front, you know, yeah. to know, to see what happened to others as an example, to listen to discussions like this, to know what the risks are before you get on and say something that could potentially put that on you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really, it's sad. You know, I'd like to see people have the, you know, the freedom to express themselves and not suffer consequences. Um, But it's just, unfortunately not the world that we live in. Like it's, it, the internet is, I mean, it's a place of forever, you know, like long ago you could get up and give a speech and, however many people were in the room would hear it, or, you know, you could circulate a letter, whoever received it or read it would be the only, but, you know, now you get on Twitter or you get on any of these social media platforms, you put something up, doesn't go away. And, and, you know, some of these, these folks, especially like, you know, these recent celebrities, I mean, these are 10 year old emails, you know, 15 year old posts that they made when they were, you know, 17 and stupid. And, you know, now, it's being brought up and they're having their, their careers ruined. They're having, you know, their, their name smeared and um, they, you know, they didn't know that when they were 17 or 10 years ago, when they were sending an email to their friends, that this was going to cause them a problem now. Right. But, you know, I, I would say to somebody that's just now entering these spaces, you know, to be very careful about what you say, you know, there yeah. are, there are ways to say things without saying things sometimes. And, (laughs) you know, it's, it's hard to develop that like group patois, you know, and, and those signals and things. Um, And, and that kind of like, that kind of coded language is, is, is like, again, just tough to, to learn, but it is the best way of doing it because, you know, saying something explicitly that is on the list of things that must not be said um, it's, it's not the best move. And the worst part is, is in five years, that list is going to be bigger than it is today. Right. You know, the, the, the things that you could say 10 years ago, I mean, many of them now are verboten. Yeah. And And it's not just, it's not just that you were young and dumb. It's even if you'd been a genius, you know, and, and very wise and mature at that time, you could not have imagined the world that we're in right now. Like, sure. I mean, and, and you can even change, you know, the worst part is, is I've seen certain people dragged for opinions they had in the past um, that they don't even have anymore. Right. You know, like, right. you know, most people don't hold opinions lifelong, you know, I'd, right. there's opinions that I've had on Twitter. I mean, to be specific, like I had, I had uh, opinions about like women in the infantry you know, mm-hmm. I didn't have women in the infantry when I was in. I was told that it was going to go horrible and, 
there was, you know, I had a whole lot of concerns and I still have some concerns, but many of them have been assuaged by, you know, the performance of women that have joined. And my opinion has changed like pretty dramatically compared with what I would say 10 years ago. But, you know, and I leave my tweets up. I mean, I think I have something like 140,000 or something incredible. It's really embarrassing actually, but you know, if someone was to look at any of those outside of the context of the more recent posts, um, they would find those opinions to be really dismissive of current soldiers, which I would never want to do. Um, yeah. So, Can you, you, you know, I, it's go ahead. I, I know it's a bit of a, a digression, but I'm interested in your take on that because that's um, it feels like there's a lot of uh, folks like me who don't have uh, any experience uh, in the military, but yeah, the, the idea of, of women in the infantry does just sort of seem, um, ineffective. So yeah. Uh, w- would you mind going into like, what sort of changed your mind there? I don't mind. I mean, the, the first, the first item that changed my mind is just that the argument was lost, right? Like, you know, the argument was had, there were opinions shared mine saying that they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be allowed entry into combat arms, um, but ultimately that I lost that, like, it wasn't up to me. It was up to, you know, politicians and uh, appointed officials and they, they reversed, uh, you know, a long held tradition of men only in com- combat arms. And, you know, that was like kind of the first part where I was like, you know, it's, I can have an opinion about a thing, but it's not going to change reality. So just going to accept that women are now in combat arms and in a way to see the outcome. And, and then I did see the outcome. And, you know, I've heard some of my, um, some of my concerns were somewhat valid. Um, some of them weren't. Um, I never really landed where most, where, you know, people talk about like the physical um, aspects of that work. You know, they really focused on that and said that, you know, women were not, were not going to be able to produce the same sort of like physical effort that a, that a man could. And, um, and, and there's still studies and such that have not really been, um, well disputed that, that that show that you know women don't perform at the you know the highest level of male performance, but they do actually perform somewhat near. I mean, a really exceptional. I wouldn't even say exceptional, but a, a high performing woman will perform better than a like a let's say like a, a medium rated male. Um, and many of those ladies are joining the infantry now and seem to be performing great. And so. You know, seeing that, I, I have a friend who uh, actually was in a, uh, a leadership type position at Ranger School. Um, and, you know, I had concerns. He approached me privately. He saw some of my tweets. He approached me privately and said, like, hey, they're actually doing pretty well here. And, um, yeah, it's little anecdotes like that that make me think that that prejudice is somewhat invalidated. Um, okay. You know, the, the last thing that like really I've held on to is just the, I believe that like resides in male, males, a, a more, it used to be called like a killer instinct. I think that term's probably verboten now, but I do think men are more prone to violence. I think that you can even look at statistics to see that, sure you know, men engage in violence uh, much at a much higher rate than women. And I still have some concern you know ask you know ceteris paribus men are are a little bit easier to just go to committing a violence than than women and so i i 
I still wonder yeah. about that aspect. And and ultimately, you know, time will tell. So I've I've kind of put down the sword um, on on that. You know, I, it's it's kind of a done deal. So I, I tend to right. not argue it anymore. And and I look to see if my, you know, if my if my predictions are coming true, and really they're not. You know, really yeah. they're not. Like most of the folks that join the infantry um, are professionals, are dedicated to the craft, do want to do well, and it seems like ladies are um, are no different. And so I've I've just more or less put it away. It's yeah. not really even my problem. You know, my son is nowhere near military age yet. Um, I'm long since out of the game. You know, right. that's that's kind of their problem to figure out now. <laughs> Well, and that's, yeah, there's, there's sort of, um, two sides to that question, which is, um, one, uh, does it make that institution maximally combat effective? And two, how much do you personally identify with the success of that institution? And, um, and, and (laughs) maybe the argument has changed almost the second side of that more than the first. Um, and, and, and sort of in this broader trend of, of the military sort of going woke, um, was that going on when you were in already, or is that something that you've been sort of surprised by as you've been out? To the first, I want to, I want to touch on each one of those one last time. So the first is, is like, I think the bigger issue for the department of defense right now is not having, um, exceptional warriors as many as as much as having many warriors. So it does actually, I think, solve their problem, which is numbers, right? Like now they can pluck people from both genders to fulfill billets. Um, right. Whether or not that, and maybe like most again, MOSs, it doesn't make a difference. The the uh, I, I think the physical, yeah, yeah. In most, in most, it actually doesn't. I think. I mean. It, it's a pretty, I, I do believe that any soldier can find themselves in a situation potentially where, you know, acts of physical strength or endurance are going to be important. But for many MOSs, it's never actually going to occur. You know, the, the, it's one of those things in like risk assessment where, you know, the impact is very high, but the likelihood is very low. Sure. Um, but to the other part where um, the, this, the military going woke, um, I would say that. It is, it is definitely changed, um, even with folks that are younger. You know, I, I do still talk to many soldiers that are currently active and many of them that joined even after I had <clears throat> long since, like, I mean, we won't call it retirement. I just got out yeah. long since I got out and, and it's changed a lot even for them. And many of these folks are still in, you know, maybe their second enlistment. Um, I saw indicators. Um I was very well insulated. Like, I, you know, the unit that I served in um, was a little bit of the old breed. Um, the company specifically that I was assigned to most of the time that I was in, was very much like the old breed. And they didn't, we just didn't have a lot of that. Yeah. Um, it was definitely, yeah, I mean, it was a very egalitarian group. I mean, I didn't see the things that I'm told that are, you know, being fixed. I mean, there was absolutely, um, it was a very male dominated job because at that time there were no females there. Um, but you know, 
it was a pretty accepting group. I mean, it was multiracial, multiethnic. You know, we had folks from other countries that were within my company. Um, so I didn't see it. I mean, I didn't see it. Like, you know, we had the same briefings that were mandatory for any unit. Um, so I didn't see it in the unit, but, you know, I should say that, like, I, I got out right as uh, right after Obama was inaugurated. And I kind of thought that that's where it was heading. Mm. Um, it, it, biggest thing that made me leave was not necessarily the higher ups or any administration. It was the it was really the people that were within my own generation, you know, technically I'm a millennial, but I've always said that like I'm transgenerational and I'm kind of a Gen Xer. Um, And the folks, like the kids that were joining after me were really different. They were really hard to lead and they didn't take to what my unit had taught me was soldiering. They didn't take to it well. And so that's primarily what drove me out. But they were they were bringing in a lot of these things that I think we would say are a part of that new culture, um, and that's what drove me out. Now, many of those like kids, your, they, your, you can ha- hold up a stress card to your drill sergeant, that kind of thing. I mean, there were assumptions that I, I don't know, like what kind of you know uh, one station unit training, which is like the infantry version of basic. Like I I don't know what that experience was like for them. Um, I can say that mine was very much of the old way, um, but they did come with those sort of um, expectations. Like they came to my unit really not getting it. And it was really hard for me to see because these are things that are not really taught by the military. Um, and I see a lot of this now, even in my current role um, as a civilian, is that it seems like the millennial generation doesn't have the same ethics um, and are not raised with the same sort of character that previous generations had. And, you know, yep. everybody thinks that like we're on a slippery slope, right? And that all that all the young people have lost their minds. And so like I'm falling into that role as I get older and, and it bothers me because I'm aware of it. But I, I do think that these younger generations were just not as mentally and physically prepared as they should have been for, for that, you know, it, well, and they, I, I mean, it can't position. always be wrong, right? It can't always be wrong, you know? And that's the thing is, is like, it can't be a, you know, it can't be a reason that you don't say the truth. Yeah. And it really feels like the truth. You know, I had a physician's assistant, um, like, which is kind of like at a battalion level, kind of like our doctor. And, you know, he shared with me a statistic right before I left, because, you know, I had a, I had a soldier, who was only in our infantry unit, I think like six months. And he came to me with a profile and said that he had um, stress fractures in his legs. And I just thought this was like crap. Like I was positive that this was crap and that he had somehow like worked the system or so. so I went to the PA over it and asked him like, you know, like what is going on here? Like this kid has been here for not even six months. Like, he had had, you know, he'd went to basic training. He had went to airborne school. He had done his five jumps in airborne. I think he had had like one or two jumps in our division. And I was just like, explain to me how this young man has stress fractures, like already. And he said that, um, that the soldiers, like they do studies on like bone density and that the soldiers that had joined 
in the years since I originally enlisted, we're seeing like something like 15% less bone density. Wow. Um, and, and that kind of shook me because like, I mean, forgetting character and, you know, mental preparedness, but like they, you can build muscle, but you're not going to build bone density in an adult. Yeah. Like there are, yeah, the, it seems that like the younger generations are just not equipped. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, they just don't go outside anymore. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there's a lot of people want to talk about, um, plastics and phthalates and, um, seed oils and all the things. And I think that that's, I think that that plays a role for sure. Um, but yeah, there's also just like not enough stressors on the body during childhood um to to develop that kind of and 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 you know not only to develop the the like bone density and musculature but but to develop the um ability to suffer um and and how you how you solve that problem is really challenging I was I, I mean uh to give you another side of that um I had to go to, I got to go to a meeting with uh, one of the leaders of our church who uh, mentioned that the only uh, kids who were sort of coming out of or or coming into the missionary program, you know, the the two-year sort of uh, commitment that most of our young men make and and a lot of our young women, um, the only people that were coming into that situation prepared were like rural kids. Um, that pretty much, and that's not, that's not a majority of our membership. Like that's, that's relatively small. And so pretty much every, every other group in North America, um, the kids were just sort of fundamentally not prepared to be missionary, but also like not prepared to like, you know, live by themselves, um, like emotionally. And so it's become routine just in the last couple of years like when I was out, you know, uh, if somebody went home early, uh, that was shocking. Like that was a, that was a big surprise. Um, Mm -hmm. and you kind of, you kind of heard about it happening to maybe like two kids on your mission the whole time you were out there. And now it, it seems like six weeks or eight weeks is like the median. And, um, that's interesting. And I don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it seems too, it seems too dramatic to be like, you know, these kids are, you know, eating lunch nuked in Tupperware. Cause like, I, I don't, you know what I mean? Like I, it doesn't seem like it's yeah. changed that dramatically from uh, when I was a kid to, to, to kids who are like 10 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, the, the, the cultural shift has been really dramatic. Like I felt like I spent a lot of time in front of the computer growing up. I think, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I I feel like you're maybe close to my age. And I grew up um, in front of the computer when I was a teenager, but like Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, we were jumping bikes off of stuff. And and I was not a particularly like, physical kid but everybody did that like everybody was outside all the time um and i 
I, I think it's cultural. Like I, I think the, um, I think that the endocrine explanation for it, um, the change is too dramatic for that to be the explanation. Yeah, I think, I mean, the issue is not to uh, try to isolate, you know, a single cause, you know, there's no, it's, it's one of those where it's like both and instead yeah. of that, you know, this or that, like in, into the, the culture aspect, like it was like Napoleon that says that, um, you know, hardship, poverty, and want are the best goal of a soldier, you know, in in rural peoples tend to have more familiarization with that, especially as things, I mean, as they get better is what we should say too. Like, you know, this is the most peaceful time on earth. This is the time, you know, even in America, um, poverty is a pretty, I wouldn't say comfortable because poverty is never comfortable, but it's, it's the most comfortable time to be poor yeah. ever in history. And um, that decadence that we're allowed um, and that we're giving our children, I mean, this includes myself, like it's not making very tough people. Yeah. And um, there's not there a lot of the rigors, even in our childhood, which I would say, I mean, I had a great childhood personally, um, yeah. but it was like you say, it was filled with a lot of bike riding and walking and running and, you know, wrestling. And I mean, it was a, it was not a difficult time in my life by any means, but it wasn't as sedentary and it right. wasn't as like, um, it wasn't as bubble wrapped, right? Like there are a lot of activities now, like, you know, I let my son not long ago, like ride his bike without a helmet and somebody <laughs> said something to me. And I was like, I mean, this is when he was much younger. He had like training wheels. And I was like, he is going to be fine. You know, yeah. like he, we're he not talking he's not about tall the, enough to fall very far. <laughs> yeah. And I understand that, like, you know, their point was like, well, you know, kids fall just like, you know, sometimes just fall over and, you know, suffer terrible concussions and brain bleeds and die. And I mean, I suppose that's true. You know, like, again, this is where the the impact could be very severe, but the likelihood to me is low. Like he's not going to achieve many velocities that are going <laughs> to cause this injury. But um but yeah, that urge and instinct that we have as parents and that our parents even had, um, depending on your age, to make a comfortable and happy life for us has in many ways hamstrung our ability to, to deal with things later in life. You know, I almost, a, think a that, lack of, I, I almost think that we never should have taught regular people statistics. Like, cause, cause yeah. you know, if you don't have some, some, some training in that, like people, people lose their minds over like the smallest probabilities and they don't have any. And that's, and like, it's not, it's not even like saying they're dumb. It's like the, the human brain is not really built to contemplate tiny, tiny probabilities. And so when you've got news that can show you every awful thing that happened in a country of 300 million people, um, it looks like those awful things are possible to you, but your brain is still built for like the medieval village where, you know, 150 people and like, you know, your, 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 your distant ancestors never encountered a rare cancer or, um, a freak accident, like everything that happened in their universe, like made statistical sense in, in terms of like, uh, there were no, like, 
really wild surprises. Um, but, but because we have this um, panopticon, we can see everything that happens all over the world. We get to see the, the, the freak accident and the extraordinary thing 20 times a day. Right. And so it's almost impossible to, to tell yourself that that's not real because you're looking right at it, right? You're seeing that mm-hmm. it's happening, um, but you can't embrace, your mind can't embrace the hugeness of the environment that's happening in, if that makes sense. Um, and, I think, and I think that that's a huge uh, source of anxiety for us because they oh, yeah, yeah, freak out about tiny things. Yeah, that's an entire podcast, right? Like talking about, like, I think that, I mean, you know, we're talking about how to be safe online, but I mean, the truth is that just being online, regardless of what your activity is, just in, just in receiving the information online um, is its, is its own danger. Yep. You know, many of the, I've seen a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of jokes made about this. Like one of my favorite posts that I've ever seen, if we could take another digression, but it was on Twitter. And it's um it's a friend of mine like he um this he was quote tweeting this this young woman and she said um you know I joined Twitter to see um, what my favorite celebrities were doing and now um I'm in like a rabid uh, democratic socialist and he quote tweeted it and said I feel you lady. I joined here to, um, to talk about hockey and now I want to throw people like you out of a helicopter. (laughs) And like, I thought that was so funny. Um, but at the same time, like it points to like, you know, a lot of this tribalism that we're all experiencing that causes us to be at odds with each other and do terrible things like doxing each other and ruining careers. And a lot of that is, um, it's an affect of the access to information. You know, yeah. if, if all you see on Twitter all day are enemies, I mean, it causes you to feel like you're at war. Yeah. And that feeling then causes more of the bifurcation that we all experience, right? Like the splitting up into parties and groups and tribes and, you know, the, in that Dunbar number that you referenced earlier, like, you know, I want to insulate myself with a group, with a cohesive unit, in group, I want to find people who think like me, who represent my tribe, yeah. and then everybody else is another. And um, yeah, I mean, that's a very strong and natural instinct that a human is, is really used to persevere for however long, you know, we've been doing this, you know, 120,000 plus years or something. And even longer, you know, before, you know, when we were more animals, but um, yeah, that, that desire and urge has caused, has caused this. And it actually, it, it, it makes itself more likely to happen because, um, it turns out that when everybody's amped up and afraid of each other and angry at each other all the time, uh, they actually do become more dangerous to each other. And then the threat is real and it's, it's, it's the, it's the prison cafeteria. Like you don't get to not sit at a table. You got to pick a table. Right. Yeah. You have to pick a table. And the worst thing about these crowds is like every crowd is on its way to being a riot. It just needs one person, right? Like to, to throw the first brick at the first window and, and then everybody starts to act like, or, you know, they're in a riot. Yeah. And I mean, that's a big, that's a big motivator behind 
what I'm doing with this uh, exit group is it's it's the intent is to pull back and not not in the sense of retreat, not in the sense of like hiding out in the woods, but we have these points of vulnerability that are largely professional because the the state is not going to send police to your house right now for things that you say online for the most part, unless you're saying, you know, things that are legitimately stupid to say. Um, and so because that's the situation, it is possible to sort of remove yourself from this environment of coercion and make yourself stronger by changing your professional situation so that you can't be threatened in that way. And right. the, the goal is both to strengthen, to, well, to build and to strengthen what I believe to be my tribe, but also to decelerate that tribe and to say like, mm -hmm. you know, because so much of the discourse, and I want to talk to you about this when we get to like the second amendment, so much of the discourse uh, in our sort of area of the internet is just like either black pill, like there's no hope, give up, it's over, or like, you know, kill a cop, blow up a federal building, like, like, like yeah. insane things to say, dangerous things to say um, in public. And um, my, my attitude is like, those are both terrible paths. Let's do neither of those. And, and so to, to, to build something where we can be strong and, and um, fight back in a sense, fight back in the sense that we no longer allow ourselves to be coerced and intimidated um, mm -hmm. without hurting anybody, without making the situation worse, without making people angrier, um, that seems like that would be a good thing to do. <laughs> No, it is. And, and what you're talking about is like, I mean, that's a principle now of like cybersecurity. You know, it used to be like prevention, you know, and response. And, you know, now it's just resilience, right? It's just surviving. Um, that's probably the model and what you're talking about. And I think like, you know, I don't know much about your organization. It's funny that we're doing this podcast together and I'm not affiliated any, in any official way, I think that we have some mutuals. Um, but like, I think that, you know, that model is the way to that of the future, you know, and, and the trick to really building that resilient community is, you know, first in vetting, yeah. you know, the, one of the problems that I see in a lot of these groups is, is they don't know what crowd they're in. And yeah. the next thing, you know, somebody's thrown a brick through a window and, now that are in that crowd. And um, so the best way is, you know, if you can take a core group of people, either that you know personally or that you've thoroughly vetted, bring them back into some sort of cloister, some sort of redoubt or citadel, and begin to just gatekeep on who yeah. you let in and give them a space within that. Um, and then continually vet them to make sure, you know, and a lot of churches do this already by principle. I mean, you've mentioned the LDS church. I think this is one of their strong points is that 
you know, they very closely monitor the behavior of the people that are within the church. Mm-hmm. And if they start to see patterns of behavior that are indicators of compromise, um, they go to that person and address yeah. the issue very formally and directly. And I think that that's, that's a way to make sure that that community has that resilience. Um, and, and the thing about deacceleration, you know, I'm, I'm a really big fan of this. I mean, I can't, I can't say that I'm a bigger fan than I, I, I don't think that most of the options that people are presented with online are usually good ones. Like I yeah. really hate doomerism. I hate black pills. Like, you know, I am uh, philosophically pessimistic, but um, I, uh, at the same time, I attempt to draw every minute of my life joy that I'm supposed to not, you know, I think that, you know, communities and fraternities and groups of, of people that can get together and start to build each other up. I mean, that's the best way. I mean, it's it's better to have a, you know, 10 men that you can absolutely trust than 100 that you're unsure of. Yeah. You know, it's not just numbers. Numbers definitely always help. But, you know, a, a strong community is a more resilient one than a huge community. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, part of my, so my, my dream in the long term, is to get a, a a group of of people from this from this community who can achieve the sort of professional escape velocity and mobility to actually get together and build something um, mm-hmm. in the real world, and to um, because because again if if you have a community if you have a tribe and like you know everybody that i mention this with is is they want to say like oh you're just going to get wacoed by the feds and it's like well but we're not going to be storing stockpiles of illegal weapons like you know like it's 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 that's not that's not to justify anything that happened to those people but like that's not our project um and and that's not even close to who we are. And so, and, and like people, you know, people in their, in their desire to amplify the crime of what happened at Waco, which was a crime. Uh, Absolutely. They want to overlook everything that was sort of scary and confusing about that group to ordinary people. And um, I remember that. I mean, I was a little kid, but I remember what people said about that group and not all of it was true, but some of it was. And, um, yeah, so, so, uh, I think people in their <laughs> people want to make the, the bad guy sort of omnipotent and omniscient oh. and there's no escape. And so, you know, you, you might as well just be a skinhead and say the N word online and all that stuff. And it's like, no, like you, <laughs> you can build something that is, that is more secure than that. You can, you can build something that's more productive than that. And uh, yeah, I, anyway, suffice to say, I totally agree. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and to use the Waco metaphor, I mean, so I agree. I mean, everything that you said, like, um, I remember it. I remember what they said about those folks. I was geographically very close to that incident um, and aware of things that others weren't. Um, even at the time, but I can say that like, you know, even in posterity, 
the example that was made of those folks was not glorious to the federal government. There have been more people drawn to the cause, let's say, of um, reducing police militancy, um, reducing the like span scope of the government, specifically even with you know uh, BATF um, or BTA, BATFE, I think is now like they're they're constantly trying to make their organization bigger. But yeah. more people are against them now because of Waco. And so, you know, to your point, building a resilient community that is not engaged in all the wrong thing and doing the bad things. If you do get Wacoed, I mean, it's it's a sad consolation if something happens to you, but at least you can provide the benefit to others of the example of your enemy. You know, one of the things that I'll say about Trump, who, I've, you know, I found myself uh, encouraging more near the end of his presidency, which I, I mean, I didn't support him at all when he initially was inaugurated. I thought it was all a joke. I kind of still do. But one of the things that Donald Trump showed me more than anything is who's my enemy and who oh, hates yeah. me, who I didn't, I had no idea these people hated me. You know, yeah. I'm a bumpkin from the middle of nowhere. And, you know, I didn't hurt anybody and my culture wasn't toxic and I didn't <laughs> do any of the things that they accused me of doing. And yet every day I was told about what a terrible person I was. And, and that was informative. Yeah. That really shook me awake on a lot of things and kind of like kind of woke me from my dogmatic slumber or whatever. Like it made me realize that there are groups of people out here who have been training. And I don't mean like physically training, but like have been training and are, are set against me. They're, yeah. they're making it their lifelong goal to come after me. And that, that was a great benefit to me that, you know, absolutely. And, and the same thing, and the same thing goes for, you know, the people maybe within your community. I mean, maybe, maybe the terrible things that you've had happen to you and, and others, like those are lessons to the rest. No, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, very, very um, sort of ordinary conservative people have reached out to me and been like, you know, I read what you wrote and I read what they said about you, what you wrote. And I couldn't believe that those lies were a, like that, that a mainstream publication was able to lie like that. And I was like, boy, could I talk to you about some other things? Like, <laughs> like if, if, if you think yeah. this is a crazy lie, just, just hang on a second. Um, mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a huge uh, wake up call. And so the scariest part, the, the thing that really kept me up after the docs was not losing the job or like, where, how am I going to feed my kids? Um, Cause I had, I had lots of options. I knew I had lots of options. And that was sort of the, the genesis of the group was like, instead of me just sort of taking one of these paths, why don't I make this network sort of available to other people? Um, but what was scary about it was knowing that I had an enemy who was more powerful than me that I couldn't strike back at. And I didn't know, I didn't know who was on their side and I didn't know what they were capable of. And I didn't know how far they were going to take it. Mm -hmm. um, and like you mentioned, sort of being, <laughs> being an example to others, 
uh, in terms of if you're if you're a, a totally innocent community and you get Wacoed. Um, one of the scary things that you have to admit, and people talk about this all the time, but I don't think they really internalize it because they don't act as if it's true. Um, they don't really act as if these enemies that they're on Twitter calling, you know, uh, uh, pedophile vampires and, and like sort of waggling their dick at these people, they don't really treat those people like they're dangerous and, right. and like they're powerful and they could really destroy you um, because they could, <laughs> they totally could. Right. And so um, either... Uh, like you're wrong about how important your criticism of them is to them, or maybe you're wrong about how malicious they are. Like, but you're wrong about something here. Like there's something in your logic doesn't make sense because if they were who you say they were are, then, you know, you'd, you'd have committed suicide with, you know, twice in the back of the head kind of a situation. Um, and that hasn't happened. And so, you know, evaluate that, but, um, but yeah, it, 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 uh, one of the things that, that was liberating about it after being doxxed was I realized that I need to do what I believe is right. And it has to actually be what I believe is right. It can't be just, um, sort of venting my bile and saying the, saying the mean things that I feel like saying. Um, it had to be, I have to be doing something meaningful because the risk of it is real. Um, there's real consequences to all of this. And so um, it, it was kind of a, a growing up experience. Like I got to quit, I got to quit goofing around. I got to do something that, that I got to do something that matters because like I'm on the chopping block either way. And so I, I can either get nuked for, for shit posting and, and, and goofing off and making my friends laugh, or, you know, I can take the same risk to, to do something extraordinary. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm trying to do. No, I think that, um, I think that's the thing, right? Like everybody needs to, well, there's so much to say off of all that. That was I'd say the first is that, yes, like the worst thing you can do to an enemy is not fight them. It's to underestimate them, right? Yeah. Because that will cause you to make mistakes that they're going to exploit. Um, and then the next is, is that, you know, we can either hang together or we can hang separately, right? And yeah. a lot of people get online from both sides, from all sides, and do what you're saying, spill their thoughts into the void, vent their spleen, um, and call that activism, right? Or call that making a change. I've seen this a lot. Like I'm out here, you know, preaching my uh, gospel, uh, you know, to those that would have ears to hear. And that's how I'm making a change. And I think that's so ridiculous. That doesn't change anything. And most of the people that are hearing you are doing the exact same thing. I mean, it's 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 the definition of like preaching to the choir for the most part. Like you yeah. are changing no minds online. You know, there is a gradual um, increasing of, of like, I'd say like people's 
I mean, we're we're all headed to the ends of the political spectrum. It seems like the, but but it's not done from one person. You know, it is that collective unconscious like move towards either being reactionary or uh, radical. It's yeah. it's no one person is doing that, and to believe that you know, as one grain of sand on a beach or moving the ocean, it's not happening. Yeah, you're as much you know, the you're best as much you, influenced by that as you are influencing it. Absolutely, more so. And yeah. so, like that's the issue is is that people need to realize, that, yeah, like you're not doing anything online. Like you're passing time. Like Twitter and some of these other platforms, it's a pastime. It's not a yeah. It's not a force for good. I mean, I do think that there are good things that can come out of it, again, but the the metaphor there or the preposition is come out of it. Yeah. It's not done there. It's done elsewhere. Right. You're not right. doing anything there. You can build a network. You can find some people that you wouldn't meet. I mean, I've, I've made more friends and had more opportunities in life off of social media than I have anywhere else. I can, I can, I mean, I can just unload my bag on right. how many how many great things have come out of social media, but they weren't, they weren't because of social media, like necessarily. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm here talking to you. I'm learning all kinds of things about, about, you know, what, you know, um, that I would never get from just the people that I encounter personally, I would probably still be in my horrifying nine to five. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I, I think you have to build, you have to, you have to take it out. You have to, you have to make it something else. Um, and that's part of why I was sort of like, yeah, the safest thing would be to just say nothing and never make any friends. But like this, this seemed more important than my day job, like the connections I was making. And I mean, fundamentally, like, uh, I, I, I read, um, uh, concrete jungle and prairie fire. And one of the things that really struck me about that, which I've heard from other places too, is, um, you know, the, the, the tactical stuff is not really that important. What's really important is to have like five guys that would, that you would die for and that would die for you. Um, and, and to be, um, to have tight, tight associations where you take care of each other. Um, because that's, what's going to keep you through sort of dangerous times. Um, I've, go ahead. I was uh, made a joke about this. Like a lot of the country board can survive crowd hates me for it, but I've said for a long time that like, uh, like an urban street gang has a higher survival rate in most of the scenarios that these, like these dorks like propose about how they're gonna <laughs> if the government's gonna collapse or whatever whatever it is that they're planning for like it's all gonna happen and they're gonna be you know they're gonna be shown right because all their preparations were not made in vain and yeah you know I, they're the nervous street gangs got a very high survival rate in almost every one of those scenarios and it's because like they have a dedicated core of people they have bonds sometimes made in blood which are the tightest right um and they, they have rituals that have define a, loyalty that require sacrifice. Exactly. And they've all, you know, they've all been very deeply intimate with each other in very stressful and terrible scenarios already. Yeah. And so the apocalypse will just be what one more. And, you know, the, the guy, you know, like, I guess another tableau is just that like, um, 
you know, let's say you have all the gear and all the training and all the experience, but you're by yourself. And let's just say that like you and a, I don't know, a party of hippies in a van are in the same wilderness area and suffer like whatever catechism, like, and they have to, they have to leave, you know, that guy with all the gear and training makes one misstep, steps in the pothole the wrong way, twists an ankle, breaks a leg, whatever. He's going to die. Whereas like this group of hippies, like let's say there's 10 of them, maybe, maybe only four survive, but four survive. And it's because like they have the collective opportunity and experience and can reap collective rewards. I mean, I'm I'm not going to tell anybody to, to be the hippie in the story, but I'm just saying that like those, those kind of probabilities like are real. And if you think that you're going to survive anything alone, um, you're doomed. Yeah. I I had a a green beret friend that I, I used to love just sort of um, <laughs> we worked together and we had nothing to do. And so I would just wander over to his cubicle and make him tell me stories. Um, and he was talking about wilderness survival and like, you know, uh, you could dip things in honey to make them more palatable. If they're really gross, you don't want to eat them or it's various little like tips and tricks and stuff. But, but the bottom line, he was like, um, you're not built to live alone. Like it, even, even with training, even with knowing everything that I know, like, first order business is find people you can't like you're not gonna just go survive in you know uh the wilds of canada by yourself like for any length of time and so like yeah it has to be it has to be social and i think that leads into um a question that i wanted to ask um it's been really interesting talking about the opsec thing because um i sort of expected that we might get into like you know have a VPN, use an encrypted email, <laughs> like, but, but I, I, my intuition, which it sounds like you, you agree with is that sort of, that doesn't really matter. Like, it's not going to, it's not going to save you one way or the other, that it's mostly these kind of social engineering type choices you can make and threats you can avoid. Yeah. It's really funny too, because like, it's probably time that I'd tell you that like, I am a technology generalist. Um, I understand a lot of the technologies that are in play for security, but my specific expertise and how I got to where I am is because I was initially a social engineer. Um, So the organization that I represent, or I shouldn't say represent here at all, but I should say that I've worked (laughs) for and represented um, primarily the work that I initially did for them to get into this space was social engineering. Um, Yeah. And, and so these would be organizations that have spent millions, tens of millions in some cases on securing their systems. And I would, I would compromise them just by walking up and looking like I was supposed to be there and asking questions. <laughs> and, and, and it was, you know, and, and there's this discussion within security about how you know, attacks have climbed the OSI model, right? And the OSI model for folks that don't know is just like how um, network communications uh, are performed, you know, from the, like the physical space all the way up to the last layer, you know, which, um, but the joke is, has been that like the, the last layer is the person. Yeah. And that like many of these attacks now are 
aimed at the person. So we've kind of come full circle. Like a con man is just as likely to compromise your network as some dude in the basement who studies, you know, TCIP protocols. Um, and it's because these technologies are getting easier to use. Now, all the things that people would tell you, and there's plenty of information out there for anybody that can digest it, is there are tools to help protect your identity, protect your actions. Um, and I am always going to encourage anyone to try to, to, to learn about them and to implement them in their daily lives. There's nothing wrong with them. Um, and, and I don't want to be like, a, you know, I just talked about, I hate black pillars and I hate doomsayers and, and folks that just tell you that oh, you can't do anything. It's, it's inevitable. I mean, there are steps you can make, you know, yeah. um, the problem with a lot of that technology though, is in order to, it's not just having it, you know, it's just like, we can talk about later on. I know we're going to talk about guns and such, but like having it, isn't going to help you. It's being able to use it. And yeah. so, you know, you can have the most sophisticated OPSEC with all the tools of your, you know, um, at your disposal and something else will get you. Like I've seen people doxxed, not even on what they did. Like one of their mistakes is they interact with a family member and that family member drops their name. I've had it happen to me. I've had people yeah. reply to me that knew me personally and divulge information that I would have never exposed myself to. <laughs> right. Um, and so like, you know, I don't want to say that like be a doomsayer, you know, and you know, everybody's going to be compromised, but you know, the game is, it's a tough game and depending on your adversary, um, it's hard to not make a mistake, you know, with most people, the simple protective measures that are um, described by others, you know, about secure messaging apps and VPNs and proxies and all this, all that stuff is very handy. And if you're using it in the correct way, um, you're pretty well protected. And for most adversaries, you're going to be fine. Yeah. But you get the wrong, you get the wrong adversary. I mean, you get the real bad guy and it's going to be tough for you. You're really going to have to have gone into the weeds and learned about the technologies that are, that are at play. You know, there are things that absolutely surpassed my understanding. I mean, I, I, the offensive security that I've done in the past, again, was very much about physical security and my ability to just talk my way into like situations. Um, they were less about my ability to hack. I've done some pen testing in the past. It's really not my expertise, but, you know, I talk shop with some of these guys and I'm not sure that like, I mean, every one of them has somebody even those guys has somebody that could dox them, hack them, break their things. Like, yeah. um, you know, it just really depends on your level of exposure to those threats. And I almost what feel like done the, to. I almost feel like the sort of cryptographic walls and the and the, um, the sort of IT defenses. Like people don't get like computer viruses anymore. Um at least as far as I know, like I, I, I haven't, I mean, my, my, my dad used to get him like all the time uh, on his like ancient desktop. And I've mm -hmm. never heard of that uh, in like a decade. Um, and I it wonder happens. if <laughs> like, it's not the same anymore, but yeah, it's still, it still occurs, but, oh, okay. But I think to your, the point that you're making here is, is that well, like where is many that of the technologies. Oh, 
more places than you want to know. I mean, most of the active, I don't know, like you're thinking a lot of it is like the definitions here, I guess, matter, right? So like malware in many forms now is not what most people think is like a virus, which means like they've, they've got some malicious program like operating on their system. Um, But that still totally does occur. It's just that many of the protections um, that are available now exceed the um, the software of like what in in my industry they would call like a script kitty, right? A script right. kitty is like a like someone who's just using some tools that somebody gave them and they don't really alter or change them in any meaningful way, and they just deploy them against a wide enough audience and you know, this law of probability, they get someone. Yeah. Um, A dilettante. Yeah. Skater perpetrator. Yeah, most, (laughs) right. Most people don't, um, most people don't get attacked by those folks. And and they're also insulated with enough information security bubble wrap, you know, like their, their web browsers got protections. They're running an antivirus locally, like some endpoint detection response. And, and many of those now are not even based on the signature of attack. Like they're based really on just system process baselines. And, you know, as soon as things start spiking or asking for utilities within those system, that's how they get shut down. You know, yeah. um, if you're in an environment like Apple, where it's like that ecosystem is a little bit more curated and protected, it makes it harder. But But yeah, I mean, there's still tons of malware out there and there's exploits. I mean, there's more exploits today than there were yesterday. There's going to be more exploits tomorrow. It's part of why I'm still in business. Like, Mm. um, But maybe the effort and the expertise required to to exploit the the vulnerabilities that exist now, since it's not the script kitties doing it, uh, they go after harder targets that have maybe more reward, like, like ransomware against a corporation rather than like, I'm just going to screw up grandma's computer just because. Well, that's it, right? Like in, in many of those, like in the past, like the, the point of compromising grandma's computer, right, is, is to really just slave her system into some sort of botnet, right? So that yeah. you can perform things like, you know, distributed denial of service and such. Like, but you're right about like the really malicious organizations um, there needs to be some sort of pecuniary reward for what they do. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just a waste of time. Like defacing a website, you know, telling somebody that they got owned. I don't know. Like some of that <laughs> stuff, it's it's not really, it's not really productive. You have They're to be much so more interested in- to do that at this point. That like you have lots of better things so. to do. That's exactly it. Like <laughs> the kind of like the kind of scary people that are out there now that are making money. Right. You know, like the the sort of yeah the sort of threat actors that are being tracked now i mean it's it's actually funny because i just gave a briefing like not even three hours ago to a cio of um, an organization and discussing with him like what current threat actors are targeting his market and um you know we're talking about like what what they're in it for how they do it and where they're from and there are now more actors, and this is according to like Mandiant, whom we sourced for this material. Um, there are now more actors that are from an unknown source than there are from a known source. Oh, wow. You know, China, like China, of course, like, you know, because they have a, a governmental kind of umbrella in which they can fall under and they be protected. 
Yeah. Um, that and and also they're huge. I mean, they're more there are more people from China than from anywhere. Sure. So there are more threat actors from China um, than any other country listed, but more than China are the unks, like the unknowns. Yeah. And and these folks are multinational um, crime syndicates for the most part, um, and organizations that are you know there are some hacktivist organizations that would be listed in some of the stuff, but but more often than not, it's just organized crime, and it's because it pays, like there's money in it. Um, and they have all sorts of mechanisms that they're they're using to take your money or yeah. extort you out of your money. So, um, so yeah, it's it's the the walls have grown high enough that for an ordinary person who doesn't have like a Swiss bank account to crack or or an organization to shut down and extort. Um, the types of threats that they're going to face are pretty much going to be social because it's going it, to, because the, the other stuff, they're not, they're not sort of worth um, blowing a hole in Twitter or Facebook to get to. So it's going to come from a, an insider uh, either in your group or in Twitter or Facebook or some, somebody's going to know somebody and that's how they're going to get you. Yeah, or you'll just or you'll just give it away. Or I mean, most hacks away. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, most most hacks now are not hacking in, they're hacking out. Yeah. Like, you know, in the long ago, we would tell people, you know, perimeter firewall defense and you know, uh, strong, you know, uh, intrusion detection, intrusion prevention s- systems and services and um now it doesn't really, they're not hacking in, they're hacking out. Like they'll just compromise one of your employees in some manner. Yeah. They'll compromise their individual account on their individual system and they'll expand access and eventually get what they're wanting. And then they'll work their way up with whatever it is they're trying to take. You know, all these defenses that like we're talking about, all these high walls, like, you know, like your antivirus, like all these systems that are made to protect you. A lot of the attacks that you see now, like the, you'll get a dialogue box that says, you can't view this contact or context, like uh, enable macros or, um, you know, turn off your antivirus because it's, it's not playing nice with this utility that you need, you know, and people do it. Yeah. You know, the same thing goes for like the social engineering. Like I would make, you know, so like not even physically, like I used to do like vision. Like, which is just like, I would, I would make unsolicited phone calls to people um, in order to get information or access. And yeah. I would make myself like a call script. And it's just like the people that call you now to tell you that your, you know, your credit card's compromised. And as soon as you say, which one they're like, uh, I, I, I think it's a MasterCard, you know, and like, you'll, <laughs> it doesn't work maybe on you. You're a savvy person, but you make a hundred phone calls, you'll get works two enough. or three of them okay. right and that's what keeps them in business um i think we've taken a very strong digression i don't know if i've lost the thread yet or not <laughs> well yeah i mean it's just just to say that um yeah it's it's the, the the opsec that most of our people need to worry be worried about is social and that's and that's fair yes. enough um but we were also headed in this direction that i want to explore which is um back to sort of the 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 military and the, the combat side of it the adage goes amateurs talk tactics professionals talk logistics 
Um, I'm a civilian. I have no formal training. I've got a gun and I've got a plate carrier. That's just basically really expensive exercise equipment. Um, Mm -hmm. so do you think that there's an appropriate amount of like tactical training and preparedness for civilians, or is that just sort of just fun LARP? It's absolutely fun LARP. Um, (laughs) but it's, um, it's some of it's prudent, you know, um, to the degree in which it's prudent really depends on what again this is just like before like it depends on what your threat is right yeah if you live in some very rural place with a very strong close-knit community of people which you can rely on your level of preparation probably doesn't need to be exceedingly high Mm -hmm. right like you probably don't need this if you are in a, a very unfriendly place with few people to help support you um you need to start making these plans and um for those, for the contingencies that, that might affect you. So I, you know, this is, is funny because military... it seems like the level of, the level of civilian preparedness is absolutely the inverse. It's the, it's it the is. guys who are out in the sticks that want to go, you know, buy nods and play around and all that stuff. Right. And the people in the cities right. who are scared of that. It is. And it, you know, um, it's, it's a strange thing to see how most people gain this out. And, and, and it's funny because like, and I'll use an example, it's like probably more personal, but um, I had a family member that's not from my family, if that's a way of saying it, that, okay. you know, she, um, she's a very concerned lady um, and she has fallen into some of these, uh, these traps. Uh, that our groups fall into. Like she kind of got into some, some conspiracy stuff. And she came to me one day on a visit and said, um, said to me, like, you need to be storing food. And I was like, okay. And she was like, you need to have at least a month's supply of food. And I was like, I think we're good. And she's like, really? I was like, yeah, like I've, I've probably got, you know, at least a month's worth of stored food. And she's like, oh, well, then you know. And I was like, uh, what do I know? She was like, well, that, you know, Joe Biden's not really the president. And I was like, oh, I know, I know what happened to you. You know, like <laughs> I immediately, I could immediately detect and diagnose like what like brain worm was affecting her. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't usually try to hurt anybody. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't know about that part, but I do, I, I am prepared. And she's like, oh, well, what are you prepared for? And my response to it was, I have no idea. You know, I do not have a specific scenario in which I've made my preparations. I don't think that anybody who's honest has. You know, we all get caught up in these charismatic scenarios about what the end times or the revelation or you know, whatever, whatever it is that, like, sure. you know, speaks to us and tells us that, like, there's a, you know, a storm coming or whatever, right? Like, we all have that. And how we prepare for it um, is usually, like, informed on that idea. And to me, I would prefer that people don't get too specific about the scenario in which they're attempting to endure at some later time. To think things like, how many people had an N95 mask? in their bug out kit 
before the coronavirus. I'm going to yeah. bet uh, maybe 0.01% um, had that item in their kit for preparedness. But what did we all do recently? We all bought a bunch of masks and gloves and stuff. So like, I guess my point here is to say that like, you don't know what's coming. I don't know what's coming. Fight the last war. Nobody. Exactly. And so what you can do is attempt to drive like some very broad conclusions about how things would go. You know, um, food is important, but at a certain point, food can be a liability. You know, sure. I see, I've seen people talk to me about like, or, or I've seen folks post about like, oh, I have like a year's worth of stored food. Yeah. I don't know of a scenario in which everyone in your neighborhood starving and like you are somehow able to hide the fact that you have so much food. Right. Like the, the, if you read about like the, um, like the conflict within like Poland and the Ukraine, right. And like, uh, in, in what, I, I don't remember what they call it, but like the specific things that were done by, uh, Stalin to the like these areas, but I think that's the appropriate term, but like they, one of the things that they, like the, the Russian soldiers would notice is you're the only person that doesn't look for food or yeah. you're the only person whose cheeks aren't gaunt. Like you can't hide that. Yeah. And it's just like operational security. Like we talked about before, like, you know, if you have a growing mound of empty mountain house wrappers <laughs> in your backyard, eventually somebody notices when they start to blow into the other yard or again, you're not looking for food. You're not desperate like everyone else. Like yeah. your cheeks are still kind of glowing. Like it's going to be tough to keep that under wraps. Um, so, you know, have some food, but probably better have a plan to go somewhere that's safe or to, yeah. to meet up with folks. Like again, b- build a resilient network. Like it, other people have an, oh, I'm not going to store food. I'm going to grow it. And it's like, where are you going to grow it? Well, I'm going to grow it in my yard. I'm like, okay, you're not going to be able to grow enough. Okay, well, I'm going to grow it in a farm. How big is the group of people that are going to be on this farm with you? Yeah. Like, if you have, like, if you have 15 acres. I mean, if like, there was, how if, do you. If there was real hunger, people would be eating rats and squirrels. Like, they're definitely going to go into your yard. <laughs> Right. well you yeah you it's going to be tough to keep that under wraps and then the same thing with a farm like let's say you had 10 or 15 acres like how are you going to work the farm and guard it at night yeah like you can't do both like at a certain point like you need a force to be able to perform a guard mount and you know only have so many up on security every day to to guard these crops because they're valuable everyone's starving like These are all problems that are usually not worked out because in people's minds, they imagine that I've got the food, I'm covered, I'm good, you know, or I've got the land and some seeds, some heirloom seeds that are in like, you know, like vacuum sealed containers. And so I'm good. Like everybody else is going to go to hell and I'm going to be out here just living off the fat of the land. Yeah. Um, And then the, and the same thing goes really for the guns and the tactical stuff. Um, You know, I, I LARP, like my primary interest in acquiring a lot of these arms is not the belief that I'm going to somehow maintain, um, you know, uh, some kind of like, I'm not going to be doing patrols, basically. That's not why I have it. I have this stuff because I like it. Yeah. I'm just going to admit it. I, I like this stuff. I, you know, I, 
I developed probably some pathological urge to be prepared from the wars or something. And I'm just indulging it now that I have the money to do so. But, you know, for most people, having a firearm is a great idea. Does mm-hmm. it need to have all the crap on it like that my guns have? No, it doesn't. Right. Um, do they need to go have, you know, uh, a training budget with, you know, thousands of rounds expended within a quarter? No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do they need to go to training to learn, you know, close quarters battle and all this stuff? No. Now, if they want to do that, of course, there's going to be a benefit to that in some scenarios where maybe those types of exigencies occur and you can you can exercise that capability. But for most of us, you're never going to be in a situation where any of that stuff's handy. Yeah. Um, but it's not bad to know. I mean, it's like changing a tire. You know, if you don't drive, then it's not a really handy skill. But if maybe you're making a long car trip and there's not a lot of gas stations along the way, or AAA to call, then you need to know it. So it really just depends on how you work that out. Like I, I like this stuff. I just like it. I don't try to make excuses about why I like it. I just do. Yeah. And if you're the kind of person that likes it, like it and just say that, don't say that you're doing it because you're (laughs) attempting to be prepared for an apocalypse. It probably won't happen. And if it does happen, it won't happen the way you think it will. But, but I, I, you know, again, it's just like with the, the tools and the techniques and everything. I, I will always encourage people to learn more about it and to, to, to get into it because, you know, in, in those scenarios where those, that type of training or equipment is, is helpful, you're going to be very thankful you did. Um, it's just whether or not you will ever be in that situation that really matters. So maybe one of these, uh, maybe one of these courses that's just sort of like, you know, basic shoot and move like you're like you're you're sort of basic mobility basic like accuracy that kind of that kind of training do you think that's i mean obviously i hear what you're saying like it's it's uh it's it's whatever you want to do because it probably doesn't matter (laughs) well and i don't and then but see that gets so close to doomerism that i'm again discouraged and making that like my stance because like i don't want to say that like it's worthless or it, it just you only have so much limited time on earth. Like sure. is the skill that you're training for going to be useful? Like clearing a house is probably not as prudent as learning to can. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, yes. Um, now should people have a basic familiarization with firearms? That is an absolute truth. Like I will say that every human on earth should at least know how to load, unload, make safe and fire a weapon accurately. I think that is a skill that like is universal. And because of the, the likelihood that you might be in a scenario and the impact that it would have, like it would be something to do next steps about movement, conquer movement after you've conquered familiarization, you know, and accuracy. And then if you graduate to movement with the gun and making it safe and firing it accurately, and you have a group of people that you want to work with, like on, you know, patrolling and room clearing and all these other items, you know, movement under contact and um, bounding overwatch and all these things. If you want to get into that, get into it. Like it's not a waste of time. Yeah. Um, and, and really it's only in hindsight after nothing's, you never used it that you could say it was a waste of time, but 
you know, it's useful skills, but I, I just don't ever want to pretend that everybody has to take those like extremes because it, yeah. for most day-to-day situations, it's, it's not really necessary. And from like a real, um, the, the survival scenario that you're more likely to encounter in terms of your cost and your time investment, like it's, it's unironically probably better to spend that time at like the bowling alley, like making friends. <laughs> no, that, is, I mean, it is, that's absolutely true. Like, you know, I, you mentioned earlier, you have a plate carrier, so I don't want you to take this personally, but like, I don't own a plate carrier. I don't own yeah. plates. Like, um, to me, I would have to have that around when, and then I'd have to have the foreknowledge that like I would need it. Oh yeah. Like, what's the situation where I get out of bed and I go put that thing on. <laughs> right. And There's I mean, no my situation. experience and well, and in my experience, like wearing these things, I can't tell you how much often I wanted to drop it. Like at every yeah. opportunity I wanted to take it off. Um, and so, yeah. And then you have to have an adversary that's actually like capable of hitting that plate. Right. Mm. Like most of the people that are going to shoot at you are probably not going to be able to hit you in the vitals on purpose. Yeah. And so like that, there's just a whole lot of things about that type of preparation that I tend to just discourage because I would rather people spend their time, money and resources on something that, that, that would get them gator, better gains. And, you know, no, and bowling alley, maybe good. It, it, and they're big monster steel plates too. Like it was, it was a dumb thing to do, but they're fun to ruck in. Like I, 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 I hike in them. And see, like, and that's a great example of time well spent, right? Like, cause <laughs> no, be, I mean, truly like, and this is talked about a lot in my own physical fitness is not near what I wish it was um, because of the kind of job I have and all those sedentary things that I talked about, you know, young America, I'm just as susceptible. Um, I don't get out and exercise as much as I should. I, I do it. Um, I'm capable of running um, at least a 5k with my equipment now. Um, and performing at a high enough level that I can place within, you know, the top five and shooting. Um, but, you know, physical fitness is an often overlooked thing. I mean, even again, N95 masks only get you so far. Um, yeah. Having a healthy body and mind is way more important than any of the other things, um, in my opinion. Okay. Well, um, I saw that uh, I saw that you posted some breakdowns of the like Ranger Handbook on your website, and um, I, I like again I I hear what you're saying about like what's necessary, and so this is more about like what's fun or interesting. Are there any other like field manual type books that you think are particularly rich um, for a civilian to pick up as far as like interesting things to know? I do. The first one. It's um, my favorite one, actually, is um, it's a little older. It's called The Defense of Duffer's Drift. Um, it was written under a pseudonym. By, uh, the pseudonym was Backsight Forethought. Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of written almost like, in, in, I mean, I won't say almost, it's written as a narrative, as a series of dreams uh, that a man has as, um, it's just like his first or second day basically as like a platoon leader, um, in the British army in the Boer war in Africa. And, um, what happens in this book is, is the man gets this assignment. He 
goes out on his first patrol and he just makes every kind of mistake and it goes super poorly for him and he dies. And then that death wakes him up and he realizes, Oh, that was just a dream. (laughs) And he goes out on the next, like on the next mission basically. And he, you know, fixes the things that he thought were the most important items from that first dream and gets himself into a new scenario and dies. And then he is basically like Groundhog Day. He just continues to make mistakes until he finally doesn't die in the last dream. And those are all lessons about how to conduct small unit operations. Uh, Most importantly, securing a uh, securing key to rank. Um, it is a really easy book. Like the Ranger Handbook, part of the reason why I am doing this, and I, it's really neglected. And for anybody that's, you know, enjoying that, I apologize to them if you're hearing this because, like, I neglect that. It, I took on something that I maybe shouldn't have, but it, I, I am going to continue with it until I finish because I won't quit. But um, the Ranger Handbook is a very dense manual, and it's yeah. intended to give to a student that's in Ranger School. So like, that's all he's doing every day. So that book is really handy to him because it is very concise um, format for how to conduct small unit operations um, mm-hmm. and the tactics that are necessary to survive in that environment, but that it's super dense. So the reason why I'm going through it and I'm going through so slowly is I'm trying to eliminate all that. I'm trying to pull out of all that laconic um, manual, all the th- lessons that are intended to be taught and all the things that a person a would bit. say. Yeah, and it's tough, but the Defense of Duffer's Drift is a much better, like, uh, condensed soup version that anybody can drink. It doesn't require, like, there's a page on my website now that is just dedicated to acronyms and abbreviations (laughs) from the Ranger Handbook, and it became necessary because I noticed that when I would write the next installment and the next installment that I would be using these abbreviations. And I was worried that a person would not remember what they were because there's so many. And, and, you know, it was endemic to my previous profession. So like, I know them well, but most wouldn't have that like level of, um, I guess like an uh, indoctrination. So the defense of Duffer's drift is a much better way of taking that in. Um, it teaches you the core principles without telling you what PSG means or you know uh, met tc or any of these like really yeah so like i think that's a really great manual i mean i've my son is a very young man he's like a young man he's a boy um i've already bought him a copy and i it's in his bookshelf and i've tried to get him to read it a couple of times but he's more into he's still into books with pictures sure so we haven't gotten very far but like i think that's probably the best one um As far as manuals, yeah, as far as manuals go, I'll tell you, it's if you're a soldier and you have like the existing, like, I don't know, military patois and like, you know what the acronyms mean and the structure and duty positions and such, like a lot of those manuals are really handy, but I tend to not encourage that for civilians because of just like what I was saying, like, there's just a lot of things that are implicit in some of those statements that are hard for someone that's not gone through, um, not gone through that experience to, to really take away. So I, I would say that there are plenty of books though that talk about um, talk about these subjects without getting into it. Like I really like 
I believe it's called Out of the Mountains. And I'd have to think about, give me a moment, I'll look it up while we talk. But Out of the Mountains is a good explanation of where I think things are going. Um, it talks about the lessons learned, mostly in like Afghanistan, but it, it also, it looks at other conflicts. It looks at like the, the Mumbai shootings. Is that, um, is that book types- about the, the littoralization of, 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 yes. of conflict? Okay. Yes, it is. My wife bought me that Kilcullen. for Christmas and mm-hmm. I got like a chapter in and I haven't read the rest of it. I'm going to go read the rest of it. Okay. You awesome. need to read the rest of it. There's a, and there's even an audio book that isn't terrible. I will say that, you know, like many of these folks, they don't realize that they kind of get a little repetitive. Like there's going to be moments that you're listening to them and you're like, he just said this. Like okay. he said this four times already. Like I got the point. If you're an astute reader or something, it'll get repetitive to you, but it's well worth sitting through. Um, to me, yeah, like man. the seminal work on a, a lot of this stuff goes back to a, the very first person I followed on Twitter is John Robb. He wrote a book called Brave New War um, that has really changed. I mean, I don't want to say like it's changed my life, like, but it kind of has. Um, Brave New War was really good. It's not a field manual. It's not going to give you like a, you know, then the platoon sergeant moves to the ORP kind of like, right. um, but, but I think that it's, it's a handy tool. Um, you know, we've talked about the Clay Martin books. Like, I think those are handy yeah, I think that um, I think like the Sling and the Stone is another one by I'm looking at right now. Haynes is a Marine. Those are all really good about like what the world is going to be like, what the you know, what types of organizations are going to be at play, you know, how they're effective and not effective. Those are more broader. But, you know, really the Ranger Handbook outside of that defensive diver strip, if you're interested in like how a unit. And it, again, it's a unit. There aren't a lot of books that are going to turn you into a deadly, right? you know, combat warrior or something like it's, it's, it's not going to work. You need to go and get training definitely with someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. If that's your intent. But, you know, if you do have a group and you guys want to get out and LARP, or if you want to go to read those principles about how, you know, patrolling actually works and how ambushes actually work and how, the Ranger Handbook is probably the best. I mean, uh, the, the old infantry manual, like I, I know that it's undergone a new change, but when I was in, it was FM uh, 7-8. Mm-hmm. Um, 7-8 is really good. I know that it's got a new one. Just Google it. You'll see what the new designation is. I don't remember what it is offhand. Okay. But those are probably all good works. Well, I, I my favorite part about um, Clay's books was the the like what if we were in this scenario and he like walks through the whole like it's a story um mm-hmm. and and so i'm really excited about this defensive duffer strip that sounds really really cool like that's gonna it's gonna light up the right parts of my brain i think um and it, it it's really great for people like i said it it just teaches you i mean it, everybody has like war in their head and, and the media has done a terrible job of really portraying like how it actually works. Um, yeah. That book does a great job. And, you know, a lot of folks would tell you that it's dated because I don't know when the Boer war was, but I want to say it was, I know it was pre-World War II. It was sometime between the great world wars, I believe, but I could be wrong, but you know, you'd read about the technologies used there and, you know, some people would not catch 
the important parts, but the, you know, the fundamental principles of war have remained unchanged. Like the technology's yeah. changed somewhat, but for the most part, the things you'll read in Duffer's Drift are, are going to, you're going to be able to find lessons that you can apply to the current era. So, and that leads me to, cause you said like the way that you think things are going. And I know you said that nobody knows where it's going. Fair enough. But what about um, the, what about the vision of these books uh, strikes you as, as likely, like you're seeing, you're seeing this and you're thinking that's, that's right. That's where it's going to go. I think, yeah. So I've read, like, uh, I already mentioned Rob, I've read Kill Cullen, I've read uh, Van Creveld. Um, I believe that the formal institutions of power and control are going to be con- continually eroded um, to some sort of Goldilocks zone that exists between your local community and the federal government. I don't know where that would land. Um, Mm. In some places, I think it's going to be very different. You know, in very rural places, it will be very much closer towards the local community. In more metropolitan areas, it will probably resemble something closer to a state government or a city state. Now, that isn't like the extreme long term. Yeah. I will never get nailed down on like what year this is going to happen, right? Like, I'm not going to tell you when Los Angeles is going to fall into the sea and the <laughs> angels are going to come back. Like, I think those kind of pr- predictions are very stupid. Sure. But in the very long term, I don't see how, I mean, especially within our government. And this really pains me because I actually, I'm kind of an old school unionist. I do believe that like our nation um, should stick together. And we should have a federal, like a somewhat strong central government, Um, you know, but what we're up to now and the trajectory I see us on, it's probably not only likely that we balkanize, it's it's probably the better outcome. You know, the the assumption assumes that, you know, some of the Balkan stories aren't told, right? Like here, or, or I guess I should say revisited. Yeah. I worry. I mean, I worry about where we're headed. You know, I've, I've made the joke with Braxton a bunch of times that, you know, like I've seen my dog go underneath the porch and I didn't know why. And he didn't know why he did it. But then a storm came, right? Like a tornado right. blew through or something. And I feel like that dog. <laughs> like, I don't know why I feel the way I do about how things are going, but I do feel that sense of doom that I think it's, I mean, it's palpable for a lot of us and that it's across the aisle. Even us, I see it in our adversaries. Like we all feel something's coming and um, you see it in the adversaries. What do you, what do you mean? Oh, you mean our, our adversaries uh, here, domestic adversaries. Yeah. 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 I mean, our greatest adversaries right now, in my opinion, are like within our own walls Um, and look at the way that, they're treating us look at the way we're treating them look at what we're doing i mean we're precipitating much of the things that we're probably all fearing but it doesn't mean that it it just means it hastens its arrival and so i think that um yeah i think that something's coming and and i you know i won't say that it's the dollar is going to collapse and i'm not going to say that there's going to be a new coronavirus uh you know sure variation um i won't say that uh, i don't know i don't know what it is i mean i feel like now you know if you study like 
like complex systems. And this is something that I really think John Robb got right. And the reason why I've really, really can't endorse it. I mean, besides Duffer's Drift, I'm not pull this to the top of the list, but, you know, he talks a lot about like John Boyd's theories, which uh, some people are familiar with mostly just because of like the OODA loop. That's like his most famous thing. But, you know, one of the things that he talks about, like, because OODA loop is a very great theory in modeling like behaviors of groups and people. And, um, but one of the things that, when he talks about like breaking a loop, most many times he talks about like what's called like a cascading failure. Yeah. Um, a really good attacker can see the nodes and nexus points within a network and not only can, you know, like not attack them all, but attack the one that tips over the next one that tips over the next one. And, right. you know, our system especially as a global system, not even just within our own country, but a global system, like there are ever increasing uh, magnitudes of complexity. And the problems with that is that like any broken gear seizes up the whole clock. And sure. ours is getting more and more centralized and more and more um, integrated. And so you know, like we said earlier, like, is it, you know, is it the plastics? Is it the diet? Is it the culture? Is it the lack of exercise, bad parenting? You know, maybe the problem is, is attempting to diagnose a single cause. Like maybe the coming thing that causes this, you know, vast decentralization and breakdown of, of what, you know, we currently enjoy. I mean, maybe it's not any one thing. Maybe one thing would be like maybe kind of a root cause but maybe we found out that happened 20 years ago. Yeah. We just didn't see the effects of it yet. And it's only with these burgeoning effects from that one thing that then caused this cascading failure, like all the way down, you know, it's probably not good that we have a, what is it like a 27,000 or $27 trillion debt. That's probably right. not good. Um, it's <laughs> probably, probably not. not good that, yeah, it's probably not good that like we can't import all the things that we used to build. Uh, it's probably not good that we have a southern border that is more or less entirely collapsed and is allowing, you know, a flood of people whom we, you know, we can't vet to allow right. in. Like, that's probably not good. It's probably not good that multinational corporations own every person that sits in our capital. Um, it's probably not good that our kids watch too much, like, TikTok. You know, it's probably <laughs> not good for a lot of these things. Like, all of these things all of these things alone wouldn't cause a problem, but maybe together, like it's a, it's a, it's a greater problem. I, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, TikTok in particular. So like, I, I just like you, I can tell that I'm getting old. Um, I've, you know, I stepped outside the current of social media in terms of like, not in terms of not using social media, but in terms of like, I'm not going to learn this new app. Like I've, I'm good with what I've got. Um, and it's always been sort of like, they're not interesting to me or like they seem kind of bad for you, like Snapchat, for instance. Um, but TikTok is the first one where I'm like, this seems like a psychic weapon. Like this, this seems like, this seems like the right. Chinese government trying to destroy a generation of children. <laughs> and uh, cause they're, cause they're like locking down the screen time over there. I don't know if you've seen this, yeah. but like they're, they're legislating, like you can't, you can't play video games for more than like 30 minutes a day or something. And, uh, and like two yeah. hours on the weekends or something. And so they are, they are using our unwillingness to interfere in personal decisions um, to 
to deploy weapons that they can then insulate their own population from. And I don't think that's just mm-hmm. TikTok, but it's it's definitely yeah, TikTok. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it's it's a it, the problem always with these social the social media is like I mean it's a drug. I guess yeah. it's totally a drug. Like yeah. I've I've had to take even my own personal precautions with it. Like um, at a certain point, probably two and a half three years ago, I turned off notifications. Yeah, I'm like I don't, I don't get notified when I have time to consult social media. I do. When I don't, I don't want it beeping. I don't want it going off. I don't want it vibrating. I don't want it telling me come back. Um, also, the just the audible sound of mm-hmm. a notification can itself become an incentive to post. It's Pavlovian you know, to to get more of it. It really is. You salivate. People have to be people have to be cognizant of that. Like you are <laughs> an animal. I mean, it, it's, it's hard for me to understand how folks forget it, but yeah, you're an ape, you're covered in hair, you've got teeth, you've got other body parts that probably shouldn't be mentioned, but you are an animal and you can be, um, can be trained. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not these mechanisms and they don't always require conspiracy in order to ensnare you. Sometimes no. a person creates a thing just to make money and they make money off of you. Um, you know, Facebook makes a lot of people money. Twitter makes a lot of, well, I don't know if actually Twitter makes much money, but so there's been a lot of money invested in it and a lot of time and TikTok yeah. too. And you've got to be careful with it. Um, I, I, yeah, I wrote a thing a couple of weeks ago about that phenomenon, like across the board and how just like Doritos, like the, your job, if you're a food scientist is to make Doritos like maximally delicious. And to make them the exact right size so that like one bite isn't too satisfying. So you'll reach for the next one, but it's enough. And the Mm -hmm. flavor, the fats have to be um, enjoyable, but they can't make you feel full because then you won't reach for the next one. And it's, it's this um, everyone inside that organization, just being good at their job, which is to sell Doritos um, can, can create this like, um, yeah, uh, a drug, a, a toxin, um, and and our and our world is because of big data, because of the amount of information that we're able to store and collect and process. Um, our whole world is full of these weapons, um, mm-hmm. because any industry that can create that kind of addictive relationship with their product then dominates that market. And uh, well, it lures in the sociopaths which attempt to control, right? Like, yeah, creating. I don't know Mark Zuckerberg, I don't think that he's particularly manipulative, right? But he created a product that every sociopath in the world wants to get their hands on, yeah, right? Like, it's it's a it's a tropism, like, it's a thing that draws in that type. And so, yeah, Mr. Dorito probably just wanted to make a tasty chip for his grandkids, right? (laughs) But now now the success of his product has incentivized 100,000 people maybe that, or not 100,000, that'd be a huge company to make Doritos, but like thousands. I mean, Frito-Lay is a big, big, big company. Frito-Lay is, I guess it's true. Like, cause yeah, there is no like Doritos doesn't even live alone, but yeah. But the idea is like, it didn't start that way. And I think that's your point. Like Mr. Dorito started this, you know, this little company out of his like kitchen making tasty chips. And yeah, the next thing you know, like there probably sits 
on the board of Frito-Lay, an entire assemblage of sociopaths dedicated to making your kid fatter. Right. Because, it, you know, your fat kid will consume so many more Doritos and they will be able to put, you know, a new yacht at their dock. Yeah. Yeah. And and to, to, no to lobby to make sure that food stamps cover Doritos so that mm-hmm. all those poor kids can, you know, can spend taxpayer dollars to consume Doritos and then grow up to become poor fat kids who consume Doritos. And it's, yeah, it's, it's unbelievably yeah. sick. And there's no, um, there's no one villain. Right. There's nobody that you yeah, can just drag out and shoot. Yeah. That's a fascinating concept actually. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, evil finds its way into everything, you know, like yeah. it's, um, even into the making of Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you know, I, 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 I don't want to end on such a grim note, but this, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> this, I mean, this is crazy fun uh, to, to, to talk with you about all this stuff. And, um, and you're a lot of fun on Twitter and your at is very hard to say, um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's essentially the votary in, in leet speak. And or yeah. you can just or you can just put in Gruntpa G R U N T P A and you can find him. His his website is also digitaldropzone.com. That's where he's got his breakdown of the Ranger Handbook, a couple of things. If you want to learn more about what we've been doing at Exit and this community that we're building and the, and the resources that we are providing to people, you can check us out at exitgroup.us. Uh, thanks, Gruntpa. It's been a lot of fun. Likewise, thanks, Doc.